So it's to look at someone's appearance and to either think favorably of that person or to think unfavorably of that person. To receive the face. So again, positively understood, uh, we would probably define this word as favoritism toward those who uh, we accept their appearance. Or negatively understood, we would maybe define it as discrimination in a negative way based on one's appearance. And we're going to see later that when we talk about seeing one's appearance, I'm not just talking about physical appearance. But we're going to talk about ways that this applies uh, even more broadly than just physical appearance, the way that, that people look. And I mentioned earlier that this, this text, I believe, is really one expansion on, on James's uh, heart test of keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And just to, to think about how prevalent in our culture this judging by appearances is. We do this all the time, don't we? I'm sure that you can think of uh, circumstances through life. We, we, we are constantly making evaluations based on appearance, based on how we perceive somebody. Many of you know that uh, right now I'm working, I work security at a, a high-rise office building in downtown Portland. And part of my job, essentially what I get paid to do is to sit in the lobby of this building and evaluate people as they walk in based on the way they look. So, for example, if I see someone uh, walk in wearing a nice suit and tie and carrying a briefcase, you know, their hair is done perfectly, but what am I going to assume about that person? I'm going to assume that they belong there. They probably have legitimate business. They're probably going to go to one of the offices in the building and and have a meeting. On the other hand, if I see some guy walk in, uh, perhaps wearing dirty clothes and and maybe his hair's kind of not, not really combed very well and he hasn't shaved in a while, what might I assume about that person? Well, maybe it's just this is just some guy off the street, you know, and he's going to want to just go hide out in the bathroom for a while. And he really doesn't belong there. So the, the company that I work for that owns the building, they want me there to kind of evaluate, to keep an eye on people, and to basically make judges, uh, judgments based on someone's appearance. And that's, I mean, that, that is what we do throughout our lives. We're constantly making those Judgments about people. In fact, it's kind of funny. I was maybe not funny on my part, uh, but I was telling Sarah on the way here that I, I can think back to uh, one time I was I'm sitting there and, and a, a gentleman walks up, um, kind of later in the later in my day there, and he's kind of looking at the the signboard there with all the the companies in there and and he asked for a particular one and and uh, and he was as I kind of just described he had. Not tattered clothes, but just dirty clothes, like he had been working, um, and they, they were just dirty as you would as you would get dirty. They weren't they were nice clothes, but they were just dirty. And he had a pretty thick beard, and his hair was probably shoulder length. And he was asking. He said he had an interview at this firm the next day, and he just wanted to find out where he was going. And I kind of at first thought, right, you have a, an interview at that firm. Okay, I've never seen anybody at that firm not in a suit. Uh, somehow, I don't I don't believe you. I didn't say that to him, but I thought, hmm, okay, we'll see. Well, sure enough, I saw him the next day. He came in, and he was dressed a lot nicer. And I guess he had his interview because I see him every day now. And, in fact, he, he constantly says hi and bye every time he walks by me. And he still has the, the hair, the beard. Uh, he wears, I think, a tie now. But it's just one example of how we, our judging of others' appearance can be faulty, and often is. 
But it also shows kind of how prevalent in our, in our culture and even in our own lives judging based on appearances is. Now, I'm not saying that we should never make decisions based on somebody's appearance. I mean, of course, there are times where we, we, we have to do that uh, if we see certain things or whatever. But what I am saying is that as it relates to our relationship within the body of Christ, as it relates to the way that we're reaching outside the body of Christ with the gospel, according to James and ultimately according to God himself, Receiving the face of somebody or showing partiality or showing favoritism towards someone based on appearance has no part of the Christian's life. Again, let me say that because I think this is important for us to get. When it comes to the way that we relate to one another within the body here, when it comes to the way that we relate to others outside the body as we reach them with the gospel... Those who claim the name of Christ, according to this text, favoritism has no place. Partiality has no place. Judging based on externals alone has no place. The one who has faith in Jesus Christ is not to be one who receives the face of others and accepts them or rejects them on that basis alone. I believe God ultimately wants us to see that showing favoritism is entirely inconsistent with His character. It's entirely inconsistent with His work of salvation and His work of sanctification in us. And it's entirely inconsistent with our pursuit of knowing Christ. And we're going to see those things as we work our way through this today. So it's very clear that the exhortation here is don't show favoritism. Don't show, don't have partiality. So our next question, what does favoritism look like? If we're not to show it, what does it look like? How do we know whether uh, this is happening in our lives? Well, maybe James anticipates that question because he gives an illustration in verses 2 through 4. Really 2 and 3. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. This could have been a hypothetical scenario that that James came up with to illustrate his point, uh, to back up his exhortation to these Christians. Or it may have been something that was actually taking place in that culture. Likely it was. But the scenario takes place in some assembly of uh, believers. In fact, it's interesting that the, James uses, actually uses the word synagogue here. So it perhaps indicates the, the Jewish, uh, primarily Jewish audience that he's writing to. But he's speaking of, of some assembly of believers, an assembly of Christians who are gathered together uh, for a purpose. And what happens? Well, two people walk in. Two very different people uh, walked in. The first man in this illustration is described as, uh, as gold-ringed, literally. Probably even wearing several rings on his hand. And he's wearing bright clothing, nice clothing. The same word is used that describes the clothing of angels. It's bright clothing that really catches our attention, grabs our, our attention, catches our eye as we see it. 
No doubt this man had an error about him that uh, exuded confidence and power. He no doubt had money. He had these nice rings. He had these nice clothes. He wanted everybody to see him. Perhaps he wanted everybody to know that he was a wealthy man. Although no one knew exactly what his, his wealth might have been, his look sure made people think that he was, that he was wealthy and had power. Well, the second man here is described as a poor man who's wearing shabby clothing. Really the opposite uh, of that first man. This guy's clothes were maybe attention-grabbing for the opposite reason. They were dirty and old. Shabby clothing. Now there's some question as to what this assembly was. Was this a, a uh, worship gathering? Uh, these Christians, and just like we're having here, and these two visitors walk in, and, and one guy's got the nice clothes, the nice rings, and the other guy has the dirty clothes... Looks like he's a poor guy. And here's the ushers back here, and they see this, this uh, nice, well-dressed guy. And he says, you know, you come right in here. we got a special seat just for you. Maybe it was a seat down front, or you know, even if we, if we were at Lincoln Street, maybe it was a blue chair. You know, he could sit in a blue chair rather than you know, one of the, the hard metal chairs. But whatever it meant, he, he, he got the prime choice seat. Maybe it was a seat up front and he could walk by everybody and everybody would notice him and see that, hey, there's this guy. Maybe, maybe it was even a powerful, well-known guy. That look who, look who walked into our church. And they gave him all of the, the advantage. He got all the deference from, from the people that were gathered there, at least from those who found him a seat. And in contrast, the poor man walks in and I mean, he's essentially t- told, you know, you can stand way back in the corner. Don't get too close to anybody. You know, or you can, you know, if you don't want to do that, you can just sit down on the floor here uh, right by all of our feet. And you know, hopefully you can get comfortable. So that's, that's one possible scenario that this could be describing. The other one, uh, because of the, the judgment language uh, that James uses here, is uh, some think that this was at some sort of church council where they were meeting to uh, mediate between two parties. And you had one guy who, who looked like a wealthy man, was well-dressed. And another guy who looked like a poor, you know, not, not, not a guy you'd really want to be a friend with. And these two guys have, maybe have a disagreement. And the church is deciding between the two. And they give the favor toward the one who is, who is wealthy. Give him all the advantage. And treat the poor man badly. So much for blind execution, execution of judgment, if that's, if that's the case. Now, I don't really think it matters much what the exact scenario was, whether it was a, a worship gathering, a church service, or if it was some sort of church council where they were judging between the two. I don't think it really matters much, the exact scenario, because I think James' point holds regardless of what the scenario was. His point is that these two men, very different men by all appearance, were treated in two different ways. One was giving, given favor, and the other was giving, given disfavor. He was treated badly. So this gets us to the question, what is the essence of favoritism? This is an illustration of what it is, but what, when we really have to get down to it and define what favoritism is. What is it? What is favoritism? I think this question is, is answered for us by noting one of the phrases that James uses in verse 3 in the midst of this illustration. 
when these two guys walk in, what do the people do? They pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing. This word could literally be translated to look at with favor. The one who wears the nice clothing. To look at with favor. To pay attention to. And I think it's instructive for us that that the favoritism here does not begin with the the speaking, the different response verbally that these two men receive. One to sit down in a a nice seat and the other to stand in, in the back or to sit on the floor. The favoritism happens before a word is ever spoken. Favoritism happened in the heart, in the mind, as they evaluated these two men, as they just as they looked upon them. They didn't see anything beyond what they what they saw. They didn't know anything about either of these two guys. Maybe maybe that guy dressed real nice and wearing the rings, maybe he spent everything he had on those two items of clothing and he looked really rich. But he had nothing more than that. Maybe that that poor guy, just like I described earlier, maybe he had been out working that day, and uh, you know, just his clothes were dirty. He hadn't showered all day, and he had been working hard, and and he didn't look like like he had much money because he wasn't very clean, and, and he and he wore dirty clothes. You see, the judgment was made in the minds of those who looked on those guys, not by what they knew about those guys and their life and who they were, but only by what they saw with their eyes and how they evaluated and made a decision based on what they saw. So favoritism is first of all a heart issue. It begins in the heart and it reveals itself in many different outward expressions. And again, I I want us to, and we'll we'll make some application here in a second, but I want us to get past the looking at physical appearance because we're we're not just talking about evaluating somebody by what they wear or what they look like. We're going to get to some other characteristics. But favoritism begins in the heart when we make decisions about people based on the way they appear to us. The point James is making with this, with this illustration in verses 2 and 3 is that favoritism exists when we treat one person better than another on, base, on the basis of what we observe about them. Again, it's important that we note that the different treatment was not based on any additional knowledge about these guys of whether they were rich or or not but simply on the perception that that one guy was rich and one guy was poor so by understanding what favoritism is that is it's it's an attitude of the heart before it's ever an an action with our bodies and with our lives by understanding what favoritism is we are in a better position to identify the ways that it creeps into our life and by the, by the power of God, we can now remove it wherever we find it uh, creep into our lives. So let's ask the question then, what are some ways that we might be showing favoritism? What are some ways that, that we are having the faith of Jesus Christ in partiality? Perhaps we would think that we might never show such favoritism as, as is described in this illustration. I mean, we would never, you know, if I'm, if I'm ushering, I'm never going to respond that way when I see a, a well-dressed guy, you know, give him the priority and, and somebody else, you know, treat them badly. I'm never going to do that, and I hope we wouldn't. Or perhaps we simply justify our favoritism because, well, it's not as bad and blatant as what James describes in this illustration. 
But hopefully we can see, and hopefully God's Spirit will open our eyes to see the areas in our life where we're, while it's not as blatant as what James describes in his illustration, it's still just as sinful and still just as dishonoring to the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And I would encourage uh, this week the small groups as you meet to talk through examples of this. Try to explore even more than the ones that I'll point out and, and bring up here in just a second. But talk through some more. See what are some ways that we might be showing favoritism individually or corporately as a church and attempt to root those out by God's power. Again, I'm not going to address every, every possibility this morning. There's probably some I haven't even thought of. Uh, and hopefully the small groups will be a place where we can talk about this more and that God would use to help us evaluate our own behavior in light of His Word and the exhortation here. So again, we show favoritism anytime we treat someone differently based upon what we see about them, the way that we think about them, the perception we have about them. It's anytime we treat somebody differently based on what we think they can offer us or just even simply based on whether we like them or not. All of those things, when we treat someone differently based on those criteria, we are showing favoritism. We are, we are showing favoritism toward those that we think can offer us something or if we really like somebody, we're going to treat them better. That's favoritism. If we treat somebody we like better than somebody we don't like, I don't know how else to, to describe that, but favoritism that God commands that we don't have in, in, in His Word here. So do you treat someone differently if they have a similar lifestyle to you and, and you share common interests as opposed to someone that maybe you don't have the same lifestyle and you don't have any of the common interests with? Just as, as an example of this, if, if you are a, a young family, you have small children, do you only interact or primarily interact only with other fam, young families that have small children? You know, and you can get together and your, your kids can, can play together and you, you, know, you share the same experiences. You, know, you, you can talk about the struggles of raising uh, two and three-year-olds. Do you only or primarily interact with people who are just like you and have the same set of experiences? And do you ignore, in, that, in this scenario, do you ignore single people? After all, we don't have anything in common with a single person. They don't know what it's like to be married. They don't know what it's like to have kids. How, what do we have to talk about, right? Or maybe kind of on the other end of the spectrum, older people who, you know, their kids are gone. You know, now their grandparents say, we don't have anything in common with them either. Well, actually you do. It'd probably do us some good to hang out with older people who have been through the, the child-raising stage and maybe we could gain some wisdom from them. But I think this is an example. Well, we're not judging based on someone's physical appearance. We're showing favoritism toward those who are just like us and share our common interests. You know, if you're somebody, in my case, who likes sports and I only hang out with other guys that like sports... Well, I'm showing favoritism to that set of, set of people, whereas, you know, am I hanging out with guys who maybe don't share an interest in sports? And for each individual person, that application is going to be different. And this is why I think even in small groups and in, you know, in families over, I guess in our case now, dinner after the service, 
This can be something we keep talking about. You know, what are, what are ways that we are giving preference and showing favoritism toward a certain person or group of people while we're ignoring others who aren't exactly like us? To broaden this out a little bit, to make another application, is our church attempting to reach only people that look and think and act like us? Or are we attempting to reach all types of people in our community as we come across them? And this maybe is a bit of a challenge as we think about being out in the world and, and seeking to, to reach those who we have contact with with, with the gospel. Because it's true that, that many of us, if we think about the people that we have regular contact with, most of the time they're going to be people a lot like us. They're going to be people that, you know, there are other parents that have kids in the same school as, as we do. Or, you know, they, our kids play on the same sports team. Or we're neighbors, so we're kind of of the same socioeconomic um, station in life because we, we live in the same neighborhood. Or they're co-workers that we have similar jobs, so we have a lot in common with. While I understand that as we seek to reach those that we have sustained contact with in our community, are we attempting to reach out even beyond that. We don't want to miss those contacts. We don't want to to fail in our responsibility to reach out to those people. But are we reaching out beyond that to people who may not be like us, who may not live in the same neighborhood, who may not have the same type of job that we do? You know, if we're middle class, are we reaching out to, to other middle class? Are we also reaching out to upper class people and lower class people? What are we doing as a church and what are we doing individually to reach those who aren't necessarily like us? Or are we showing favoritism while we wouldn't call it favoritism? Are we only really focusing our time and energy on those who are are exactly like us? Do we as a church treat people differently and even individually do we treat people differently based on what they can offer, up, offer our church? You know, we kind of joke, maybe it's not much of a joke, but you know, we kind of joke that when, when a, new, a new member or some, somebody is visiting for a long time, maybe thinking about joining, you know, attempt to think, oh man, they, they could work in the nursery. You know, they'd be a great nursery worker, or a great Sunday school teacher, you know, a great musician. Do we only look at people based on that evaluation and, okay, this guy, you know, he's, he's a good musician, so I'm going to invest my time getting to know him so that when he joins our church, he can, he can participate in, in our worship ministry up here on the platform. Do we only think about people and show favor to those who are particularly gifted in a certain area so they, look, they can benefit us somehow while we ignore those who we don't perceive to have any gifts you know, that person really isn't any use. We're glad that they come, but you know, we, I don't really see what they can really offer us. Maybe we'll just serve them. We'll, we'll, we'll help them grow because they have a lot of growing they need to do. Is that the attitude we take? Well, at its very core, that is showing favoritism toward one group of people or one person based on their perce- our perceived giftedness, what we perceive their gifts are. Do we treat them differently? Again, I remind us that we, we miss out, I believe we miss out on the benefit that every member of the body has for our life. See, God has called us, God knows what He's doing when He calls us all together in this body. 
He knows that I need each one of you in my life to minister to me in, in some way. Perhaps I'm not even aware of, of that reason. But God has, in His, in His providence, ordained that we are together in this body for whatever purpose. As we gather in small groups, you know, God, it's no accident that you're in the small group with the people that you are. God knows that that group of people needs to be together for a particular purpose so that you can minister to one another and strengthen one another, provide accountability for each other. We need to realize that whether we perceive somebody as being gifted or, or we, whether we perceive somebody could, could actually help us and teach us something, we need to realize that God has brought us together and we can learn something from, from each other whether, whether we perceive that you're, you have a lot to offer me or not. Like I mentioned earlier when it comes to parenting, we need to realize that, that probably every person in here has something to offer by way of, of ministry. It may not be standing up here and, and teaching the Word of God or preaching the Word of God. But we can learn from one another. And if, if we're just ignoring people that we don't think can offer us anything, we're missing out on what, why God has brought them into our lives, why God has brought them into this body to minister to this body. So do we as a church and we as individuals treat people differently based on what, they th- what we think they can offer to the church or offer to our lives? How do we treat people when their lifestyle is, is either contrary to Scripture or in our own mind they're just really bad people? And here I'm kind of thinking maybe more outside the body as we look out into the world. Do we ignore those who who have a sinful lifestyle or and we just evaluate them as that's just a really bad person that you know there's really no hope for that person to ever come to Christ. I mean do we do we think that way as we look outside this body? I mean I think this is kind of penetrating to us. If have have you ever looked at somebody and thought man that that person that person would would never come to Christ. There's no way that God would ever save that person, so they're not really worth my time to talk to or to minister to. Well, I'm glad that God chooses to display the wide variety of His grace in, in bringing people to Christ so that we, it, it just slays that, that way of thinking. And I hope, that, I hope God does that in our, in our minds. As we, as we look out at this world and see people who are, who are without Christ, just as Jesus did, we ought, to, we ought to look out at them with compassion and with confidence knowing that, you know what, God can save anybody. There's nobody outside the, the reach of God's grace. And when He comes in saving grace and calls, calls that person, it's not, it's not dependent on, on even our witness to them or it doesn't matter how bad their lifestyle might be. When God reaches out to save that person, he, he will accomplish His saving work in them. But that's one way that we can show favoritism, even by just kind of somebody that we, we think is just too, too bad to, be, to ever become saved, to ever become a Christian. And we, you know, we'll just, we're not going to waste our time talking to that person or trying to minister to that person or reach them with the gospel. How about this? This really focus more inside the body. Do you show favoritism 
by the way you interact with people who may have differences of theology or differences of, of practical standards um, as, we live, as we live out our faith. Do you treat people differently? Do we, do we only spend time talking theology with people who agree with us? Or do we, do we maybe come along and, and look to, to learn from others as we, as we go to God's Word together and study His Word to know God more? To know Jesus more? Or do we show favoritism based on whether or not we agree on every point of doctrine with somebody? Hopefully we can, we can realize that, we again, we are part of one body. God has brought us together for a particular person, purpose. And it, you know, it really doesn't matter. Maybe I'll say it this way. We, we should not view those who differ with us as somebody, a, a project that we can go to and, and try to you know, convert them. Instead, let's, just, let's, let's try to see more of Christ. And if, and if, God, if God wills, we, we may at some point agree on every point of doctrine. But I hope that we don't segregate ourselves based on whether or not we agree on every point of doctrine or every uh, way that we live that out and practice that in our life individually or in, in our church corporately. I hope that we, hope that we can realize that, that God has brought us together. God has saved all of us from, from all the, the various backgrounds that we have and brought us into this body under the headship of Christ, so that we would gather together and worship Him. I pray that God is already making us aware of of our sin of favoritism, our sin of partiality, and that He will enable us to overcome it through His power, working in us by His Spirit. So we've seen what what favoritism is and we've tried to make some applications about about what it looks like in our in our experience but now let's look at and I've got three ways that or three reasons why favoritism should be avoided why should we avoid favoritism ultimately what's the basis for for James writing this and exhorting these Christians to not show favoritism why should favoritism be avoided? And I think there's at least three that come right out of this uh, section of the text here. And the first one is this. Favoritism denies the gospel. Favoritism denies the, the gospel. Now that might sound like a, a strong statement, right? I mean, none of us, I hope none of us would, would deny the gospel. I don't think we would actually verbally deny the gospel, right? But whenever we show favoritism, we really are contradicting the reality of the gospel. And James wants his readers uh, of this letter to know that. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, listen, my brothers. It's almost like he's grabbing them by their shirt and he's shaking them. He says, listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James reminds them that they are becoming an heir of the kingdom. He calls them brothers. They, these are fellow heirs of the kingdom. He's reminding them that the ones that, that God chose to be heirs of the kingdom were the poor in the world. 
This echoes Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is really a theme we find throughout Scripture, that God calls those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are helpless, to become His children, to display His glory. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God chose the nation of Israel to be His people. Which, of course, they were not a nation at the time of His choosing. When He chose them, He made them a nation. He led them throughout their history and they became a nation. But remember what He reminded His people in Deuteronomy 7? He said, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. If God had chosen a people on the basis of how powerful they were and how far of a reach their kingdom had in the world, He certainly wouldn't have chosen Israel. But that's exactly the point. It's not about the advancement of merely a human kingdom. It's about the advancement of God's kingdom. And you see, God recognized and is revealing to us that He chose a small nation he chose an individual, Abraham, and made him, promised him, and then made him a great nation. Because that way he would get the glory. He would get the credit. It's all about the advancement of his kingdom. Now I want us to be careful not to mistakenly think that God literally only saves people that are poor financially. And people that are destitute and have been wiped out and are helpless. In fact, the one commentary I came across, the, the author raised this question. He said, you know, is James simply com- condemning one form of discrimination while replacing it with another? That is, well, we often humanly favor the rich, those who uh, can benefit us somehow. So now what we want to do is we want to favor the poor and, and discriminate against the rich. Well, from what, the way I understand it, James says, show no partiality. That is... You know, our mission is not to even things out. So now we, we show favoritism this way, whereas we did this before. Show no partiality, one way or the other. But it would be a mistake to think now that God only saves poor people and that, you know, if you're rich, you can never be saved or, or along those lines. But God does, as His Word says, save people when they come to realize that they are poor and helpless before God when it comes to the glory of God and the riches of God we're all poor and helpless we're all dead in our sins and apart from his working in us we'll never come to Christ so God does save those who who he 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 shows they're poor in spirit they're poor in relation to Christ they're poor when it comes to the merits of earning their salvation that's who, that's who God comes and saves in Christ. And it's good to be reminded that in Jesus' own ministry, he, he reached out and ministered to those such as the woman at the well who had five previous husbands and was living with a, another man. Uh, the blind leper. Uh, or the blind beggar, rather. Lepers. Prostitutes. Jesus ministered to all those people and it's, it's, a, it's really instructive for us to evaluate who we are ministering to. But also Jesus ministered to people such as Nicodemus, 
to Zacchaeus, to Jairus, to Joseph of Arimathea, the centurion, and others who were rich, powerful, in positions of authority. So in Jesus' own ministry, we see he did not show partiality. He treated, the, he treated all equally. He wanted to make all these people aware that what they needed was not just water at the well and, and sight and healing from leprosy. But they needed him. They needed Jesus. Just like Nicodemus needed Jesus. Just like Zacchaeus needed Jesus. So the ministry of Jesus as well as the entire New Testament teaches that the rich, and, the rich and powerful and the poor and outcast are all alike hopeless before God and in need of salvation. None of us has had anything to offer God as incentive for Him to save us. And I'm so glad that, that He doesn't save based on what we have to offer Him. Aren't you? There's a common saying, which I think has actually been already quoted in this series once, but well worth repeating. Uh, The ground is level at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal, whether we have lots of money or no money, whether we have lots of gifts or no gifts. We're all alike helpless before God, needing His saving grace at the cross. I'm so glad that God did not evaluate what I could offer Him as His basis for, for saving me. So favoritism really denies the reality of of the gospel. Favoritism contradicts the reality of the gospel. Favoritism also ignores the glory of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I don't know if you caught it, reading verse 1. The title that James gives to Jesus... James doesn't often refer to Jesus by name in this book. In fact, I think it's only two times. One, one was in the first verse of James, and then here is the other. He calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That is not a common reference to Christ. Normally he's just called Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. But he tacks on this description of, of glory. Why does he do that? I kind of found myself asking that question as I... I prepared this. Why does James call Jesus by this title when it was not a common title that that the, the New Testament writers used to describe Jesus? And I think perhaps what he's doing is he is he is showing the foolishness of of looking at the glory of the rich man in in all of his nice clothing and nice rings instead of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. When we become enamored with the glory of a person another human being when we when we become enamored with with their human achievement and their their power their gifts more than become being enamored with our savior Jesus Christ we're sinning we're missing the glory of Jesus Christ we're missing that which we should be looking at, that which we should be seeking. We should be seeking to see the glory of Jesus. I'm reminded of, of a, a hymn, the words to a hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I think the same thing will happen as we, as we look and see Jesus more, see His glory 
any perceived glory that we see in other people will, will be dim by comparison. And, and in fact, by God's grace, as we see more of Jesus, everybody else will kind of look the same. And we'll, we'll, we'll reach out to all of them the same indiscriminately. Favoritism at its heart is idolatry. Setting up someone that we like more, that we respect more, more than God Himself, more than, than Jesus. May God help us to remove that idol of favoritism from our heart by His grace. And then the last reason why favoritism should be avoided, and I didn't know how else to say this, so I, I said it this way. Favoritism promises more than it can deliver. What do I mean by that? Well, it gets, us, it gets back to why we show favoritism in the first place. We often show favoritism because of what we think somebody else can offer us. How our showing favoritism somebody to somebody will, will lead to their treating us better, doing something for us. Kind of the, brings to mind the saying, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. So I'm going to show you respect and give you preference, rich guy, so that you know, you'll, you'll help me as I try to become rich. You'll help me you know, get along in life. You have a lot to offer me. Well, this poor guy, he doesn't really have anything to offer me. You know, my, my befriending him, my serving him and helping him, what's he ever going to do to me? He can't help me. And it's helpful as we look at verse 6. 6 and 7. It's helpful to remember the culture of the, the day that James is writing. The first century. In that day, there really wasn't a middle class as we are familiar with in, in our culture. There really was just a, a small percentage of, of rich people who owned almost everything. And then there was the majority of people were what, what we call poor. And they work for the rich. Uh, they, they, they do the work so the rich guys can be rich. There really wasn't any movement between the two. When you were rich, you just pretty much stayed rich. When you're poor, there really wasn't any hope of you ever becoming rich. You pretty much just stayed poor. And you can see why, you know, in that day, uh, somebody who is poor would look at a rich guy and say, if I treat that guy really well, if I do something for him, you know, maybe he'll think kindly on me and, and do something for me. Maybe he'll help me kind of make that next step up in advancement. Well, James kind of reminds his readers of the silliness of that way of thinking. Let's read verse 6 and 7 again. You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In that culture, the rich could just go into court and pretty much take from the poor whatever they wanted. You had a piece of land that this rich guy wants... Let's just go to the court. You know, the court's going to side with the, the rich man again, a form of favoritism. So James reminded his readers, why are you showing favoritism toward the guy who's going to come in and take your land, going to take your property? He also reminds them that the rich and powerful that were opposed to God and his working in the church to advance the gospel. We kind of saw in chapter 1 how how that, that contrast between rich and poor in the message that, that week this was brought out. The rich were opposed 
to God. Not, not every rich person was opposed to God. That's not the point. These were the people that were blaspheming the name by which they were called. It doesn't make any sense for you to show them additional favor. Have you forgotten that they're the ones that are mistreating you? The ultimate blessing that we have received is exactly what James alludes to in verse 7. We have been called by the name of Jesus to inherit eternal life through the saving work of God in Jesus. That's the ultimate blessing. We need to see Christ and His glory and forget about what glory we see around us in, in other people. Don't become enamored with, with others', uh, others gifts or others' wealth, or whatever the case might be. Don't be enamored with with others. Be enamored with Jesus. And I trust that God's Spirit is already working to change our thinking about about favoritism. Or maybe at first we think, well, I don't show favoritism. I, I, I don't treat two guys differently that walk into this assembly. But I think we see, and again, I, I hope the small groups will take this and run with it. What are... What are ways that we show favoritism without even realizing it? What are even well-intentioned things we do that really, at their core, are favoritism? May God's Spirit lead us to see those things so that we can repent of them. Just as Josh talked about uh, last week, repenting of those things, putting them away, by God's grace, growing uh, into into Christ-likeness. And then to see how really favoritism contradicts the reality of the gospel. Favoritism contradicts the reality of the gospel. And I think those two primary applications God will use hopefully to change us individually and change us uh, as a church to, to glorify God more through the absence of favoritism. Seeking to reach all peoples in our community for with the gospel of Christ and seeking to minister to all those that he has brought into our body here. May God do that work uh, as he sees fit so that we can bring him uh, more and more glory and may he receive the glory uh, for what he does uh, in our in our body through this. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your spirit who can take uh, your word and make applications that I haven't even thought of. And I pray that you would do that work in me. I pray that you would do that work in our body. That we would see ways that we have failed to bring glory to Jesus through showing favoritism. Pray that you would root that out in our in our lives and in our church, that we would better and more accurately reflect you as we seek to live for you, as we seek to minister to you, as we re- seek to reach our community with the gospel. Again, may you receive the glory for the way that you work in us and through us. And I pray now, as even as we continue to worship you through singing, that we would we would see you above all else and that your seeing your glory more would would prevent us from from perceiving others glory uh, here on earth and, and evaluating 
them and, and treating them on the basis of that. But that we, as we see your glory and seek to accomplish your work, your great commission to reach people with the gospel, that we would not look at how, like, how likely we think they might be to, to come to Christ, but that we would go all, to all people confident that you will, you will call uh, all sorts of people to come to Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.